you couldn't hear, we are going over a sermon series on Epiphany. It's the sequel to Advent, if you will. Advent's all about the incarnation, you know, the baby in the manger. God took on flesh, the crazy story that the eternal God took on humanity. Epiphany is the sequel to that. It means appearing or to make manifest or to make known. And this season of the church calendar focuses on the truth that through Jesus, through our Jesus, we experience the fullness of God Almighty and his loving salvation for us because our Jesus truly is the living God. Amen? And today's epiphany lesson is over Jesus' first miracle after being baptized, after receiving the Spirit, which takes place at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And it is in this first public miracle of Christ that the Father makes known his saving plan to secure and cleanse his adulterous bride through his one and only son, Jesus Christ, the faithful bridegroom. And that's really the main focus for today. Our main point is this. Jesus is the faithful bridegroom. Jesus, the Christ, is our faithful bridegroom, your faithful bridegroom. So let's turn to the scriptures and let's hear the hope that God has for us in his son today. If you can and are willing, please stand. Hear now the words of the living and true God. The prophet Hosea, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. The Lord says, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear of, to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. The words of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian church, chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. The Apostle says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love 
his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And lastly, the reading of the Holy Gospel from John chapter 2, 1 through 11, our focus for today. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Marshall Medill, would you bless the congregation? Amen. You may be seated. Church, the story of Jesus, the faithful bridegroom coming to save and cleanse his people, his chosen bride, it be honest, it begins in eternity past, but it's set in motion in the garden. The day Adam and Eve chose death over life with God, when they chose to be the masters of their own destiny, to decide good and evil for themselves, the day they listened to the devil rather than the divine. But the language of the people being called God's chosen bride and the the accusations, not even accusations, the factual reality of their adultery, that type of language doesn't really get used until the time of the prophets. If you're reading through your Bible, when you get to like Kings and Chronicles and Isaiah, that's when you start seeing the language of bride and adultery come up. And this is where our reading from the prophet Hosea comes in, being one of the prophets. This is how he talked about the people of God at the time, using language of adultery. And this really brings us to our first preaching point, what we call the problem, why Jesus came, the problem. Because church, Jesus, the faithful bridegroom, he came to save and cleanse his chosen, wayward, adulterous bride from their sins because of their great problem. God's people had committed adultery through idolatry. And that's really the story of the whole Old Testament. I mean, if you think about the book of Judges, it's a great example. Time and time again, God will be gracious to his beloved bride, his people. He'll give them everything they need for life with him. Everything. 
and then they turn to other gods. Rinse and repeat. Keeps happening. Oh, and judgment follows, always, because when you turn away from the source of life, there's only death. So God will bless them. They'll enjoy it. They'll turn to other gods, give the other gods credit for what the true God had done for them, worship these other gods, sacrificing their children even, doing terrible, awful things. Then the natural result is judgment, and then they cry out to God. And so Judges serves as a great example of what that's about. As If you were to think what the Old Testament's about, that's what it's about. The people of God constantly, as the prophets would say, whoring themselves out to other lovers. It's strong language God uses through the prophets to accuse his people of the reality of what they're doing. They would forsake the one true God, the fountain of living waters, and turn to deaf, dumb idols, which cannot save, cannot create, and cannot bless them. And constantly they do this. And it's through the prophet Hosea, this charge of adultery, this seeking after other gods and worshiping them, is really like that's, and its consequences, that's the central message of his prophetic preaching. So much so, if you remember the prophet Hosea, God used this man's life as an object lesson for all the people. He actually had this man marry a prostitute to serve as an illustration of what the people of God were like compared to his own faithfulness. And on our reading this morning, the first line in our reading, it summarizes the problem of adultery through idolatry. Because he says to the prophet, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Meaning they, they love the worship of the pagan neighbors. They love the pagan gods of the land. The, the pagan gods they were supposed to drive out. They had adopted them as their own and participated in the worship of them and their festivals. The idea of raisin cakes, that sounds weird to us, but it's like celebration language. So much so, reading the Old Testament, it says they would build altars on every high place. Every tall hill, every town, every city would have shrines all over it. Even to the point where the temple of the living God himself in Jerusalem would have idol statues all in the courtyard. And the same priests that would go in to burn incense to God, to offer the sacrifices of God, they would still do all the same rituals of the true God. And alongside of it, they would have the same Levitical priests worshiping other gods. That is the status of his people. They exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. And to do so, to turn from truth to lies, is a miserable condition. And in verse 2 and 4 through our Hosea reading, God, being the faithful husband as he is, does what he has to do for his wayward bride. He judges the people and he sends them into exile for many years in order to cure them of their idolatry. I'm sure you're all familiar with the story, but the northern tribes, they go into Assyria, and a few generations later, Jerusalem and the temple are mercilessly destroyed by the Babylonians, mercilessly destroyed by them because of their rejection of God. It's one of the low point in the scriptures when the people are vomited out of the land, God says, which they knew would happen to them because it's in the law. He says, if you turn from me, what happened to the Canaanites will happen to you. And God is true to his word. He does not lie, amen? But alongside his holy judgments, we also see the promise of hope that God's great love for his people has not stopped despite their gross adulteries. 
For verse 5 in our Hosea reading shows us that after that time of judgment, God himself would prepare for the people a descendant of David, their king. David's long dead by this point, but he says, one day you're going to seek after David, your king, and this is Christ our Lord. And by turning back to the fear of the Lord God, the people would find goodness and peace, the prophet said. And it is this plan which is explained by the apostles and in our epistle reading today, because in their letters, they're explaining the gospel to us, like what actually took place, what happened, what it means. Which takes us to our second reading and the second preaching point for this morning, the plan, the plan. In our epistle reading, the apostle Paul, he lays out God's plan of salvation for his wayward bride. And in it contains the fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy that David, the king, would be prepared for the people to save them. For he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, or without wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Church, the plan of Jesus, the faithful bridegroom, is that he would lay down his life for his corrupted, adulterous, wayward bride in order that she might be sanctified, be made holy. And to be made holy, to be made pure, is to be freed from the tyranny of idols that they were worshiping the controlling sins and the controlling passions which own us and which make us slaves to the devil himself. For Christ said, whoever sins is a slave to it. And not only did Christ free us from the bondage of idolatry and the controlling passions and sins that rule in our flesh, but he actually cures and heals us of the wounds and corruption from our time as idolaters. The consequences of sin which leave us broken in this life Christ can heal us of these things. That's what he says he's going to do. Because I don't know about you, but after we come to Christ, I would say it's no exaggeration that every single person that comes to Christ has baggage. You know, we use that term, like baggage, like when people are dating, getting married, like, oh, they got baggage, you know, like left hangovers from old relationships. When we leave the idols of our lives to follow Christ, we bring baggage to Jesus, don't we? We bring the problems of our idolatry with us. We all have it, physical and mental scars from the life we led before Christ, things like past regrets that still haunt us, or behaviors and thought patterns that still destroy our relationships or hurt us. We still carry those with us when we come to Christ. And yet in that, he promises that he will cleanse us of these things to heal us. He does not leave his bride in a beaten up, broken state. Amen? And to prove it, the apostle here uses... uh, baptismal and sacramental and scriptural language to describe this cleansing power and process. For it is through God's word in all of its form, from our initial baptism into Christ to the regular ministry of the word and the sacraments, these things are avenues, Paul says, which Christ speaks his gentle and loving and healing words to us, his true love to you and me to heal us from our past and to transform us into his likeness, a glorious and faithful bride, one who is holy as he is holy, and pure as he is pure. For consider this, the washing of the word, that's that, that phrase, that same idea, the same word which God spoke to create the heavens and the earth, God speaks over you to make you new. And if God can speak 
existence from nothing, when he speaks his words of love over you, when he tells you that he adores you, when he loves you, when he cherishes you, do not doubt the same word that can create can create a new heart in you and me and heal you. For he speaks healing words over you and me. Because when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And this should encourage us because we cannot make ourselves righteous or holy or good. You don't have that power within you. You don't have the ability to make yourself holy in God's eyes. We need someone to do that for us. And only God can make things holy. But that is a profound statement of Christ that he makes his bride holy simply because he loves us. I mean, there is no, when you try to like think, like reduce it down like, God, why do you love me? You know what his answer is? You ever had kids, what's the ultimate answer that you, kids hate? Just because. Just because. God loves you just because. There's nothing in you and me that is love worthy other than simply because he chooses to love us. And that should bring us great hope. And this is his great plan, church, that through sacrificial love, God would secure his true love forever, you and me, through sacrificial love. That, that's the plan. Nothing we earned, nothing we deserve. It's just because he loves us and is willing to do so. God loves his creation and he loves his people. And it is in our gospel reading that we see Christ make this initial proposal to his bride known, to his estranged bride, calling to her and showing her what he is going to accomplish in only a few short years at Calvary's cross. Our third preaching point, the proposal. We have the problem. The people are in gross adultery through idolatry, story of the Old Testament, so much so that the prophet Jeremiah says that God divorces his people. Paul says that, don't worry, the plan is this, the bridegroom will lay down his life to save his bride. And now we actually see the first image of that in the gospel, that this Christ had really come to save his people. Because it's not a coincidence that this Jesus would perform his first miracle at a wedding. It's not. And during this joyous event, God granted a providentially ordained opportunity for Jesus, the faithful bridegroom, to give a sign. Uh, the, the Apostle John uses the word signs a lot in his uh, gospel. Miracles that serve a greater purpose to show us truth. To show us what Jesus' life and ministry is all about. To secure his own bride and prepare her for their wedding feast on that final day. And so how fitting is it that when the wine runs out at this celebration... Jesus uses the stone jars, which, as we read in the scriptures, are used for the Jewish rites of purification, the washings required by the Old Covenant, which, according to the scriptures, can never make someone really holy or take their sins away. It can't. You read the book of Hebrews time and time again, and it'll say all the Old Covenant things 
all the washings of old, did not actually purify the people and made them temporarily accessible to God, but it never purged them of sins. It did not take sins away. It didn't actually cleanse the conscience of the worshipers. Sins still need to be paid for. And yet here, at this wedding, Christ uses these ceremonial washing pots to demonstrate what he is going to do for his people, which is provide a true and better cleansing by his own sacrifice and shed blood. Church, this is how this short miracle story of turning water into wine reveals the glory of the Christ, the faithful bridegroom, because it's an open declaration. It's a statement, a proposal to his beloved. Like, you know, when you were courting after your wife and you had that fancy proposal, this is the proposal of Jesus to his bride, what he's going to offer her, what he's going to do for her. He is going to cleanse and save her through his sacrificial love for her, to do for her what the law could not do, according to Romans. For the law and the commandments, the old covenant, only reveal sin and bring judgment. But the gospel of Jesus Christ brings life and salvation, true forgiveness, true harmony and union with God. And only a few short years after this miracle, Christ made good on his proposal to his bride. And he was crucified for her with blood and water flowing from his pierced side. He died, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again from the dead to offer forgiveness to all who will come to him. That is the story of Jesus. This is the glory given to him by the Father, to be the sin offering and salvation for people. That's the glory of our Christ. And it is this glory that we honor and partake in every Lord's Day for the last 2,000 years during our communion. Think about that. Every time we break this bread and drink the Lord's wine, we are participating in the promises of the wedding of Cana, what Christ would actually do for his people. Purge us of unrighteousness. Think of the words of institution, the words at communion. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This is what Christ came to do for his bride to save her, forgive her, free her, cleanse her, wash her. Whatever language you want to use to describe salvation, that's what Christ actually came to do, and he made good on his word. That is what we partake in every week here, and Christians have. And just think about that. Every Sunday, somebody somewhere on this little planet is participating in the Lord's Supper for the last 2,000 years. There has never been a time since the resurrection, that there hasn't been a Lord's day when somebody somewhere has not taken the Lord's body and blood like that. It will not stop until his coming again. And so every week we're reminded of that, the better forgiveness Jesus has for us. For as the master of the feast testified, truly God saved the best wine for these last days. He saved the best for last. He saved Christ for these end times. So church, I would have to ask you, Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you run to refuge for him? Is this Jesus actually the good wine to your life? Or is he not? Is he your sweet salvation? Or is he like the bitter waters of judgment which only remind you of your sin and you haven't come into faith in him yet? But if you have, 
If you can testify this morning that yes, Jesus is that sweet sacrifice for my sins, my peace with God. Let's consider some application from our scripture reading today, some things that spoke to me this week, things that can speak to our hearts today. I would say first off, after I read a lot of this this week and seeing the story of the gospel play out of Christ saving his bride, uh, I would say first off, understand your relationship as Christ's bride. That's something, and I don't think that's something you can teach. I don't think there's any to-do steps on that. I think that is simply talking to God about it. That's just something that takes prayer. That's something that just requires you to sit in prayer and talking to God and asking for understanding. Do you really understand the depths that you are the object of God's love? I mean, most of us here and most of us in this life are going to get married or we've felt loved or we've given love. Do you, if you understand even the, the, the smallest human expressions of love and have felt loved or have given love, do you understand that as the bride of Christ, his people, that you are the sole recipient of infinite love? I mean, you can't put words to that. You can't explain that. You can't teach that. That's like experiential Christianity. So when you go through your life and you, you taste and see that the Lord is good and you experience God's good salvation... I hope you start to develop an understanding of what it means that you are the bride of Christ. That this Jesus laid down his life for you. In fact, the love of Jesus, his overwhelming love, should almost shame us sometimes. And what I mean by that is, when you come to recognize how little we actually love God back compared to how much he loves us, it should cause us to almost like be embarrassed of like, wow, this God loves me so much and I, I, I don't love him back nearly as much. I remember I was watching a movie and I can't remember which one it was, but I think it was a Spider-Man movie. But it's something I do. Is when You ever have seen the parents yell at their kids when they're going into school? They'll yell really loud, like, I love you. And they're like, mommy, dad, you're embarrassing me. But they're like, you will always say you love me back because I love you. You know, like you don't be embarrassed at your mom and dad. That's what came to my mind this week about just the love of God is so strong and powerful that when we are ever embarrassed by it, like, man, God loves me so much. It should motivate us to greater depths to understand who this God really is, that he would lay down his life for us. And again, you can't teach that. Not really. It's something you just have to experience in your prayer life with God. So I'd encourage you meditate on these things during your weeks coming up. What does it mean to be really loved by God? And then understand how little we love God back and let that change our hearts, encourage us into greater depths. And second, it's a marriage passage. Fulfill your marriage covenants. Marriage is the epitome, if you will, one of the, one of the clearest examples that humans get to participate in what it's like for God's love for us. So even pagans who get married, they're still doing something godly-like. And marriage teaches us the gospel. So we got to ask you, when you think about your marriage and the scriptural commands we just had, Paul is saying, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church, and wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. Are you doing that? If you look at your marriage, does your marriage line up with these truths? And just think about who he's saying these things to. He's saying, submit to your, hu- to your husbands as you would to the Lord. Husbands, love, your Christ, love the bride like Christ loves the church. 
And you know what? We don't do that very good, do we? I definitely do not love my wife nearly as much as I should according to the gospel. And I know you don't either. And wives, I know that you don't submit to your husbands as you do to Jesus. But we're called to, our marriages are supposed to be a reflection of that type of harmony with God and the gospel. Are you paying attention to your marriage? Do you treat your marriage as the God-ordained institution it is? And for the unmarried, I would say, those who are looking to be a spouse one day, are you teaching your children or those looking to be married, are we teaching them to love and have relationship like this? Because I don't know about you, but I've been to a couple of weddings that I'm not saying they weren't Christian, but when they came up to read their vows to one another, they didn't even read any of these scriptural charges to each other. They just talked about how much like they loved one another, which I'm sure is true and good and beautiful, but like that's not how marriage is described in the scriptures, is it? And so we should be teaching our kids and those seeking to be married, understand what it's going to cost you, what you're actually required to love like, and then recognize, I can't do this, God. And you're like, that's the point. You need the Spirit. Christian marriage can't be fulfilled without the Holy Spirit. It takes us to a different level of love, learning to be sacrificial loving, sacrificial submission. It takes us to depths with God. Are you tending to your marriage? And lastly, if you have been espoused to Christ, if you have tasted and seen that he is good, if you are considered Christian and you know this, uh, are you preparing your hearts for the wedding feast on that last day? Are you preparing your hearts? A reading from the Revelation says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. For fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Are you actually living as the bride of Christ should, knowing your calling in Christ, knowing this relationship you're supposed to have with Jesus, are you living in such a way that when the wedding bells ring on that day and you are summoned up to your bridegroom, whatever that final day would look like, whether you die now or Jesus returns, that type of thing, are you preparing your hearts for that day? If it happened now, would you be shouting hallelujah? Would you be rejoicing like that or would you be saying, wait, I'm not ready for you, Jesus, because what you think and live now about Jesus really determines what you believe about Jesus. Because if you believe this end is coming and this joyous day is being prepared for you, man, what, what sane bride or groom, knowing they're going to be married soon, isn't excited about that day? This is salvation for Christians. It's not a day of judgment, but are you ready for that day? Is your wedding ceremony of Christ, are you excited about that? Are you excited about the return of Christ? And are you preparing yourself for that day? Is your life characterized by the white garments he describes? Or are you still living as if Christ is not really yours? Are you like our ancestors who would chase other gods? Are you pursuing worldly pleasures? The raisin cakes he talked about in Hosea. Do you love worldly pleasure more than you love your Jesus? Is your life actually idolatry? Where do you need to be pruned? 
Where do you need correction? Where do you need the healing power of Jesus, as we talked about, because he truthfully cleanses and heals his bride? What sins and passions still own you? And as we come to the altar, this would be a good time to pray about those things. For your Jesus came to secure his bride, which includes you. And I would say to those of you who have not believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, this is your time to accept your wedding invitation. Christ is calling to you to join him, to be his bride also. Will you believe upon this Jesus? There will be elders up here that are willing to pray with you. Or maybe you're at home. Have you bowed the knee to this Christ? Have you asked him to save you? And to be joyful, knowing that he will secure your future. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the faithful bridegroom. You came because of our great problem. All of us, before we come to faith in you, are idolaters. You even say that we're enemies of the living God before we get saved, before we bow the knee to you and receive your salvation before we received your good gifts. But the great plan, your great plan, was to lay down your life to secure your bride. And in our gospel reading, you show us that you're going to give us a better cleansing than just the commandments. Because we can't live by the commandments. We never keep them, and they will never make us holy. We'll only ever fall short. But in your holy gospel, we find true cleansing, true forgiveness of sins, true healing. Work on our hearts, Lord. Write faith in our hearts that this Jesus does save. Meet us where we're at. You know every single person that ever has and ever will be. You know everybody in this room. You know everybody at home watching. You know exactly what's wrong with them and what they need to be praying about. Meet us, Lord. Work on our hearts. Do what only you can do and cleanse your bride. Make us more like you. And if somebody does not know you, they aren't your bride yet. We pray that you would do whatever you have to do to save them. So just like the disciples, when they saw that miracle, they believed upon you. Give us all the gift of faith this morning. In Christ's name we pray.